0: It is the mid-afternoon of a hot, rather hazy day. Slow, almost non-moving clouds cover the whole of the skies. The air around this group of travelers feels thick, uncomfortable. There is far more humidity in the air than is typical of this season and place. Quietly, they continue to walk westward. They were now on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus walked on ahead. He had set his face to the west earlier on this day. He had risen out of the shade of a broad, leafy tree, beckoning casually toward his friends, and then begun walking in that direction. The disciples followed after him. They had since covered many miles, west from the Jordan district, and had been mostly silent, listening mostly to the counsel of their own fears. The disciples were dismayed at the idea of his re-entering Jerusalem again, and those who followed were afraid. It bears mentioning what specifically they were afraid of. You see, to them, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication seemed like yesterday. Both had ended with the same result, with crowds of people standing on the knife's edge between complete fascination with the words of Jesus and of picking up rocks to stone him. Those were the poles of his reputation in Jerusalem. One moment, perhaps the Messiah. The next, potentially a heretic. All of this was as fresh to his followers' memories as could be. This was what they were thinking about, walking. Then once more, and this would be the third time they'd heard these words, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. The first time, they'd been walking through that narrow slot canyon south of Caesarea Philippi. The other time, they'd been hiking north toward Capernaum. Both of those tellings just happened within the last few weeks. Yet for some reason, these all-important words just keep slipping their minds. We are now going up to Jerusalem, he said to them, as you can see. They stood there semi-circled around him, eyes downcast. And, he said, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the power of the chief priests and scribes. They are going to condemn him to death and hand him over to pagans who will jeer at him and spit at him and flog him and kill him. These latter words, intense at first, trail off. Jesus glances off toward the middle distance. Then he turns back to his friends, holds their eyes, smiles a mirthful smile, joyous, almost laughing, and goes on. But after three days, he will rise again. Still smiling, he begins walking westward once more. The disciples follow after, after just a minute or two perhaps an hour passes. Then Zebedee's two sons, James and John, approached him. They separated themselves from the others, walked ahead, flanked Jesus on both sides. He seemed to be lost in his own thoughts, strolling along. They considered how to break in upon his thoughts. Quite astoundingly, what they didn't stopped to consider was the memory of the last time he'd spoken of his death, how they'd all heard his words, thought for a moment, and then resolutely forgotten them. In fact, immediately after that second such saying about the cross and resurrection, they'd gotten into a timely little argument about, well, what do you think they argued about? About the nature of his messianic leadership, whether self-sacrifice accorded with their theology or, theologically, what sort of atonement his atonement might perhaps be. Or perhaps it was an argument, given the eternal implications of his prophesied death and resurrection, that called for high-flown arguments of uh, soteriology, pneumatology, eschatology, etc., etc. Well, that wasn't quite what they'd spoken about back on the road to Capernaum. No, actually, this was what Mark told us they'd chatted about, quote... On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Which wasn't the most well-timed time for said conversation. But at least I'm sure James and John have learned from that. Jesus notices their presence at both of his sides. He nods his head to them. Speak your minds. So one of them, clearing his throat, does... Master, we want you to grant us a special request. What do you want me to do for you? Answered Jesus. He is staring straight ahead asking this, looking up along the road. Give us permission, one of the brothers says, casting a quick backward glance at the other ten, to sit at uh, one on each side of you in the glory of your kingdom. Jesus sighs to himself. He takes a dozen or so steps in silence. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. They wait patiently upon his next words. Then he says, quietly, still sighingly, can you drink the cup I have to drink? Can you go through the baptism I have to bear? Yes, we can, they replied far too swiftly. Remember, they have absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about. Their thoughts are as far removed from the words he'd just been speaking of his crucifixion as are most of our thoughts about the kingdom of heaven and our little lives here on earth. And you see, Jesus knows this and he loves them yet. He knows our foolishnesses too and loves us yet. Then he told them, speaking the most personally consequential pronouncements that will ever be spoken over James and John's earthly lives. You will indeed drink the cup I am drinking, and you will undergo the baptism which I have to bear. But as for sitting on either side of me, that is not for me to give. Such places belong to those for whom they are intended. Disappointed, James and John drop back from his sides. They let him walk ahead as they rejoin the others. Unfortunately for them, one of the newer followers has overheard. He whispers the words of their request to the others. When the other ten heard about this, they began to be highly indignant with James and John. Highly indignant, let's be honest that these two had so firmly beaten them to the proverbial punch. Uh, Highly indignant that, when there are clearly only two sides to sit on next to the throne of the kingdom of heaven, that these two sons of Zebedee would have happily claimed both. Again, they have absolutely no idea what the kingdom is about. So Jesus called them all to him, turning on his heel in the middle of the roadway, there in the hot sun, and said, his eyes flashing you know that the so-called rulers in the heathen world lord it over their people, and their great men have absolute power. But it must not be so among you. No, whoever among you wants to be great must become the servant of you all. And if he wants to be first among you, he must be the slave of all men. A turn of phrase is suddenly occurring to the mind of Jesus. The Holy Spirit speaking to him from the Father is setting his next words on his lips one after the other. He intones them quietly. For the Son of Man himself has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life to set many others free. He turns and walks away. Then later on, they came to Jericho, just under twenty miles from the capital city now, and he was passing through, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd. By this time, it was on toward evening. The heat of the day had finally broken. The cool of the evening was starting finally to be felt. They were walking along the western edge of the city, looking off toward the approaching sunset. The colors of the dusk were beginning to descend. People were stopping at the edges of the intersecting streets to watch this unexpected crowd. Children were standing on stoops, looking at him wonderingly. That feeling of the pre-dinner hour was in the air. Families preparing meals indoors, storefronts closing up. The evening would be mellow, quiet, restful, serene. But a man named Bartimaeus that is, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting in his usual place by the side of the road. It was the dusty corner between Main Street and the High Street, on the opposite side from the washout gutter. He had first been led here almost two decades ago. This was his personal corner of the earth. This was where he drew his daily bread from the east-west walking crowds. When he heard the rumor That it was Jesus of Nazareth walking by? Jesus of Nazareth, that eminent wonder worker. He began to speak up in humble, appropriate, Sunday Sabbath sorts of tones. Uh, Jesus, my Lord, would you care to step aside and speak here on the non-gutter side of this humble thoroughfare? No, not quite. No, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth walking by. Jesus, our God incarnate, he began to call out to him like a raving, almost rabid madman. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Many of the people, both the incidental bystanders along the road, as well as the actual followers of Jesus, told him sharply to keep quiet. But he, for his part, shouted all the more, Son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stood quite still there in the roadway. His eyes turned in the direction of the sound of this raucous voice. He said to the people around him, Call him here. So they called the blind man saying, It's all right now. Get up. He's calling you. At this, Bartimaeus threw off his coat jumped to his feet, and with hands extended outward, came flying to Jesus. Jesus greeted him with a smile he couldn't yet see. What do you want me to do for you? He asked the blind man. Oh, master, the blind man said to him, let me see. These are the last words he will ever speak without seeing his addressee. The smile of Jesus has now reached the apex of its perfection. Jesus beamed. Go on your way then, returned Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And Bartimaeus, formerly blind Bartimaeus, the man seemingly forever ensconced upon that particular corner of the street, recovered his sight at once and followed Jesus along the road. And now, let's say, at that moment, you'd happened upon them. You hadn't been there, had not been there to see the healing itself. You were just heading home, let's say. Heading southward along the high street. Well, here's what you might have come upon. A wild-eyed man, gazing at everything with frenzied, half-crazed countenance. And another calm, smiling, delighted, as they are walking westward toward the outskirts of the city of Jericho. The former sprints ahead and then comes back to the latter. What are those those distant, uh, upward places, he asks. Hills, says the other. And what is their color called? Brown, or perhaps a sandy brown. Brown. The wild-eyed man has hit upon a pattern, he realizes. He looks up. And this, I imagine, is the sky I've heard so much about? The other nods. And what do you call this color I see here? Blue. And those soft-looking things that move across its blue? Those are clouds, which are white. Then the one begins, without any explanation, to point to different uh, trees, plants, bushes. The other man, knowing his meaning, simply lists the name of each toward which he points. Palm tree, almond, uh, pine, olive, date, papyrus reeds. They are now at the furthest edge of Jericho. Just before they leave... They happen upon a shop of fineries. The quieter man escorts the other inside into the cool, dark interior. The two men stand and look into a bronze mirror housed within a gaudy, gilded frame. There they are, reflected, the wild-eyed man and the smiling other. And you see, says the latter to the former, that's you.